Chapter 11, Part Number 20 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922 by Various Authors. Conclusions by George Lee Mallory. It might be supposed that, from the experience of two expeditions to Mount Everest, it would be possible to deduce an estimate of the dangers and difficulties involved and to formulate a plan for overcoming the obstacles which would meet with universal approval among mountaineers. But, in fact, though many deductions could hardly be denied, I should be surprised to find, even among us of the second party, anything like complete agreement either in our judgment of events or in our ideas for the future. Accordingly, I must be understood as expressing only my personal opinions. The reader, no doubt, will judge the book more interesting if he finds the joint authors disagreeing among themselves. The story of the first attempt to climb the mountain in 1922 will have no doubts on one point. The final camp was too low. However strong a party may be brought to the assault, their aim, unless they are provided with oxygen, must be to establish a camp considerably higher than our camp at 25,000 feet. The whole performance of the porters encourages us to believe that this can be done. Some of them went to the height of 25,000 feet and more, not only once, but thrice. And they accomplished this feat with strength to spare. It is reasonable to suppose that these same men, or others of their type, could carry loads up to 27,000 feet. But it would be equally unreasonable to suppose that they could reach this height in one day from a camp on Changla at 23,000 feet. No one would be so foolish as to organise an attempt on this assumption. Two camps instead of one must be placed above the Changla. Another stage must be added to the structure before the climbing party sets forth to reach the summit. But how exactly is this to be done? It is to this question that one would wish to deduce an answer from the experience of 1922. It is very unlikely that any future party will find itself in the position to carry out any ideal plan of organisation. Ideally, they ought to start by considering what previous performances might help or hinder the aim of bringing the party of attack in the fittest possible condition to the last camp. What ought they to have done or not to have done, having regard to acclimatisation? Is it still impossible to lay down the law on this head? After the first expedition, I suppose that the limit of acclimatisation must be somewhere around 21,000 feet. It now seems probable that it is higher. One of the psychologists who has been most deeply concerned with this problem of acclimatisation, considered it would probably be desirable, from the psychological point of view, to stay four or five days at 25,000 feet before proceeding to attempt the last two stages on consecutive days. Those who slept at Camp 5 for the first attempt would certainly be agreed in our attitude towards this council. The desire to continue the advance and spend another night at a higher elevation, if it persisted at all for so long a time at 25,000 feet, would be chilled to pity, and the increasing desire to get away from Camp 5 might lead to a retreat instead of advance. The conditions must be altogether more comfortable if the climbers are to derive any advantage from their rustication at this altitude. It would not be impossible, perhaps, if every effort were concentrated on this end. To make a happy home where the aspiring mountaineers might pass a long weekend in enjoyment of the simplest life at 25,000 feet, it would not be practical having regard to other ends to be served by the system of transport. But it might well to spend a similar period for acclimatisation 2,000 feet lower on the Chang La. 
There, a very comfortable camp with perfect shelter from the prevailing wind and good snow to lie on can easily be established. Noll spent three successive nights there in 1922 and apparently was the better rather than the worse for the experience. No less important in this connection is the effort of exertions at higher altitudes and a man's subsequent performance. We have to take into account the condition of the climbing parties when they return to the base camp after reaching approximately 77,000 feet. With one exception, all the climbers were affected in various degrees by their exertions to the prejudice of future efforts. It would seem, therefore, that they cannot have had much strength to spare for the spinal stage to the summit. But there was a general agreement among the climbers that it was not so much the normal exertion of climbing upwards that was in itself unduly exhausting, but in the addition of anything that might be considered abnormal, such as cutting steps, contending with the wind, pushing on for a particular reason at a faster pace, and the many little things that had been done in camp. It is difficult from the normal elevation to appreciate how great is the difference between establishing a camp on the one hand and merely ascending to one already established on the other. If it ever proves possible to organise an advanced party whose business it would be to establish at 25,000 feet a much more comfortable camp than ours in 1922, and if, in addition, a man could be spared to undertake the preparation of meals, the climbers detailed for the highest section of all would be both be spared a considerable fatigue and would have a better chance of real rest and sleep. The peculiar dangers of climbing at high altitudes were illustrated by the experience of 1922. The difficulty of maintaining the standard of sound and accurate mountaineering among a party all more or less affected by the conditions, and the delays and misfortunes that may arise from the exhaustion of one of the party, are dangers which might be minimised by a supporting party. Two men remaining at the final camp and two men near Camp 5 watching the progress of the unit of assault along the final ridge and prepared to come to their assistance might serve to produce vital stimulants, hot tea or merely water, at the critical moment and to protect the descent. It is a counsel of perfection to suggest providing against contingencies on this large scale. It is well to bear in mind the ideal. And there is besides precaution which surely can and will be taken, to take a supply of oxygen for restorative purposes. The value of oxygen for restoring exhausted and warming cold men was sufficiently well illustrated during the second attempt in 1922. The question as to whether the use of oxygen will otherwise help or hinder climbers is one about which opinions may be expected to disagree. Anyone who thinks that it's impossible to get up without oxygen can claim that nothing has shown it to be impossible to get up with its aid. For my part, I don't think it's impossible to get up without oxygen. The difference of atmospheric pressure between 27,000 feet and the summit is small, and it is safe to conclude that men who have exerted themselves at 27,000 feet could live without difficulty for a number of hours on the summit. As to whether their power of progress would give out for reaching 29,000 feet, it is impossible to dogmatise. I can only say that nothing in the experience of the first attempt has led me to suppose that those last 2,000 feet cannot be climbed in a day. I am not competent to sift and weigh all the evidence as to whether how much and with what consumption of gas it was easier to proceed up the slopes of Mount Everest, with oxygen so far as Finch and Bruce went on, that memorable day but I do venture to combat the suggestion that it is necessarily easier to reach the top in that manner. I think no one will dispute the statement that the final camp for the second attempt was too low, as it had been for the first, to enable the oxygen party to reach the summit. With the same apparatus, it will be necessary, in this case, also provide a second camp above the North Col. And the question for the moment will ultimately be, 
is it possible to add to that immense burden of transport, the 27,000 feet, the weight of the oxygen cylinders required? The weather, in all probability, will have something to say to this problem. The expedition of 1922 was certainly not favoured by the weather. There were no continuous spells of calm, fine days, and the summer snows began a week earlier than the most usual date. One wonders what sort of weather is to be expected with the most favourable conditions on Mount Everest. It is conceivable that a series of calm, fine days sometimes precede the monsoon. But when we consider the perpetual winds of Tibet at all seasons, it seems unlikely that Mount Everest is often immune from this abominable visitation. It is far more likely that the calm day is a rare exception, and only to be expected when the northwesterly current is neutralised by the monsoon from the southwest. The ill luck of 1922 may probably be computed as no more than those seven days by which the monsoon preceded expectation. For so short a time for preparations in advance, we were indeed unfortunate in meeting an early monsoon, and it is hardly possible considerably to extend the available time by starting earlier. There was only the barest trickle of water at base camp on May 1st, 1922, and the complications involved by the necessity of melting snow for water both here and at all higher stages for any considerable time, would be a severe handicap. But it must be remembered that the second attempt was made a week before the monsoon broke. Time appeared short on the mountain chiefly from the threat of bad weather, and the signs showing that the majority of days were, to say the least, extremely disagreeable for climbing high on the mountain. If others are confronted by similar conditions, they too will probably feel that each fine day must be utilised, and the attack must be pressed on. For the fine days past will not come back and ahead is the uncertain monsoon. A final question may now be asked. What advantages will another expedition have which we did not have in 1922? In one small and in one large matter, the next expedition may be better equipped. It was disappointing, after so much time and thought had been expended over the problem of footgear, that nothing was evolved in 1922 which succeeded in taking the place of alpine boots of well-known patterns. The great disadvantage of these sort of boots so that one cannot wear crampons with them at high altitudes. For the strap, bound tightly around the foot, will almost certainly cause frostbite. Either different boots or different spikes must be invented if the climbers are to have crampons or their equivalent. It is essential that they should be so equipped to avoid the labour of step cutting, and the lack of equipment might well rob them of victory on the final slopes below the summit. This matter of footgear is not so very small, after all. A still more important one is the oxygen apparatus. It is conceivable, and I believe by no means unlikely, that a different type of cylinder may be used in the future, and capable of containing more oxygen compared with the same weight than those of 1922. A 50% improvement in this direction should alter the whole problem of using oxygen. With this advantage, it might well be possible to go to the top and back with the four cylinders which a man may be expected to carry from a height of 25,000 feet or a little higher. If a second camp above the North Col becomes unnecessary in this way, the whole effort required, and especially the effort of transport, will be reduced to the scale of what was already been accomplished, and can no doubt be accomplished again. The further advantage of a future expedition is simply that of experience. It amounts to something, one can't say how much. In small ways, a number of mistakes may be avoided. The provision of this and that may be more accurately calculated according to tried values. The whole organisation of life in high camps should be rather more efficient. Beyond all this, the experience of 1922 should help when the moment comes towards the making of a right plan. 
and a party which chooses rightly what to do and when to do it can so exclude other possibilities as to be certain that no better way could be chosen has a great advantage. But when all this is said as to experience and equipment, it still remains true that success requires a quality. History repeats itself, perhaps, but in a vague and general fashion, only where mountains are concerned. The problem of reaching the summit is every time a fresh one. The keen eye for a fair opportunity and resource in grave emergencies are no less necessary to the mountaineer everywhere, not least upon Mount Everest than determination to carry through the high project and the simple will to conquer in the struggle. End of chapter 11